Hello and welcome to The Polling Perspective, a podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at public opinion polling and what's going on in politics today through a series of informal conversations between experts in the field. I'm your host, Doug Schwartz, and I've been directing the Quinnipiac University poll since 1994. Today, we're going to talk to Steve Kornacki, who's a national political correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. Over the next hour or so, we talk about everything from political history to the uncertainty of the presidential race. We also even talk about the upcoming presidential debate. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve. I certainly did. Steve, I I wanted to talk a little bit about how I got to know you, and I'm so amazed and impressed by your rise in the political world that I remember you way back when in New Jersey, I want to say it was about 15 years ago that I had a colleague, you remember Clay Richards, who handled our New Jersey polls. And you might not know this, but there was a day that Clay went to Trenton to talk about our polls. And he came back and he said to me, Doug, there's this guy, Kornacki, who asked some really great questions. He is really sharp. You know, we really got to be on our game for him. And I was like, wow, okay, Steve, Steve Kornacki, I'm going to remember this guy. And then years later, I'm watching TV, and I, I think it was probably MSNBC, and I see you just totally killing it when it comes to analyzing the polls and the elections. And I'm like, I know that guy. He was the New Jersey political reporter guy. How did you go from New Jersey political guy to star polling and elections analyst for NBC and MSNBC? How did that happen? Yeah, your your timeline is is about right. It was um, I got to New Jersey in 2002, actually, there at the end of the summer of 2002. And I remember Quinnipiac was it was a big, big event. At that point, there was a big Senate race going on. Ah. I don't know if these names will mean anything to people, but Bob Torricelli was the Democrat running for re-election in New Jersey, and he had just been reprimanded by the Senate Ethics Committee, and he'd been under federal investigation. They declined to indict him, and potentially the Democrats had this very tenuous majority in the U.S. Senate at the time, and, and if they lost the New Jersey seat, no way they hold on to that. So all eyes were on this New Jersey race. That's when I got there, and I remember you know, the, the unveiling of the new Quinnipiac poll, it was a major, major event. And in fact, I, I do remember there was one probably mid-late September where you had, you know, Torricelli falling behind and it helped precipitate a, a chain of events where he got out of the race five weeks before election day, the, the incumbent Democratic senator. And there was this whole dispute because the law didn't technically allow a new candidate to come onto the ballot, but the state Supreme Court allowed it. And it was a really interesting first month for me to be in, in, in politics because New Jersey for about a week there became the epicenter of the national political world. But right. um, I, remember that. And I remember it was these, the, the Quinnipiac poll, whether it was the 2002 Senate race or at that time, Jim McGreevy was the governor. We get the monthly or so oh, yeah. approval ratings. And they were, you know, I, I think polling you guys, I think you know, kind of created something that a lot of, you know, a lot of our, particularly schools, I'm sure, you know, a lot of schools saw an opportunity to, to kind of try to emulate. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, that 
started was, um, you know, was covering state politics in New Jersey. Um, I tell people it's been almost two decades, but the, my favorite stories are still from New Jersey. Uh, just the characters and, and, you know, things like a Bob Torricelli you just don't necessarily see elsewhere. But um, I went, you know, briefly, I went from uh, yeah, New Jersey to um, Capitol Hill. I, I was about three years in New Jersey and then I went to cover Congress for, uh, for Roll Call, which is still around. But when I was there, it was sort of the last free you know, Politico. The publication Politico came and just changed everything in Washington, D.C., um, they came in just after I finished at Roll Call. So, you know, I was at Roll Call. They were still kind of kings of the world down there. It was a really cool place to be. I was I was very low rung, but it was a very um, interesting experience to see that. Then um, came back up to the New York area, wrote for the New York Observer about politics there mm-hmm. and um, started just you know being in New York. They would start calling me to come on and just, you know, random segment on cable news in the in the middle of the day at MSNBC. And eventually worked up where I was a contributor, meaning I was sort of exclusive to them. And then they put me on a panel show at MSNBC. This is about eight years ago. And I did a weekend show. And the thing I always really wanted to do was elections, election night. And then the big opportunity I got was in 2014 when uh, Chuck Todd, he took over Meet the Press in 2014. He had been doing the board on election nights on MSNBC when he took over Meet the Press, they wanted, they needed somebody else to do uh, MSNBC and the board. And I was hoping I'd get the call, and I did. And that was uh, and that's what I've been doing since. Ah, so there's the connection. So when Chuck Todd took over Meet the Press, that was your opening. Yep. MS kind of needed their own thing. And, and I, I remember getting the call, um, I guess, early that fall. And I was like, sign me up. This is, this is what I've wanted to do. So and I've been, been doing it since. It sounds like a dream job for a political junkie. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm also a political junkie. I got the bug probably back in college. I'm curious about you. Like, when did you know this is your thing, that you are a, you know, politics junkie? Yeah, it was, um, honestly, I I would say probably middle school. Um, Wow. Because we did a um, mock election. I grew up in Massachusetts, and we did a um, mock election for the Massachusetts governor's race. This was in 1990, and uh, um, I played portrayed the the Democratic candidate, who, John Silber, who was the president of Boston University. He's a a very unique character, and I've I've told people like as I as I came to understand Silber, not so much through that campaign, but through the years later, he was a this makes any sense to people. He was a very, very intellectual version of Donald Trump. He, oh, interesting. He kind of he confer, he, he kind of the, the the sort of vitriate the the Trump relationship with the media, the bashing of the media, the populist strains that he taps into. He had all of that, and I think there was a working class appeal there. But at the same time, he would he could quote philosophy, and you know. <laughs> so it's an interesting interesting mix. But um, it, it was a um, fascinating campaign. It was a very close race, and, and Silver lost. Bill Weld, that was when Bill Weld got elected governor of Massachusetts. It was a close race, and the um, I, yeah, I was just drawn in. The, the The whole kind of spectacle of the campaign, I guess, drew me in. And then on the heels of that, you know, actually, city right next to where I grew up is Lowell, Mass. And you know, about a year later, Paul Songus, who's from Lowell, Massachusetts, had been a senator from Massachusetts, ran for president, and. Um, Got a lot farther than anybody thought he was going to get. Won the New Hampshire primary, won a few others, ended up losing to Bill Clinton. But you know, having the um, kind of the guy from the next town over basically 
running for president. That also happened when I was in middle school. So that moved things along in terms of you know my interest. Wow. I think you're the first person that I've ever met who got that interested in politics in such an early age. Mm-hmm. Middle school. I mean, when uh, I was yeah, in middle not, school. I was not normal in middle school. <laughs> What's that? It, it, it made me very abnormal in middle school, I would say. <laughs> yeah, but it really paid off, right? I mean, that that interest, you just followed your dreams and it seems like you've achieved them. Yeah, no, I mean, I've got, like you say, the, the, the perch I kind of have. That's where I want to kind of watch it from. So no, I'm, I'm happy with where it's, where it's uh, ended up. Yeah, back in middle school, I think for me, I was, you know, more thinking about sports and I know you're a sports guy, you know, but never politics. Yeah. I don't think ever dawned on me at all. It really wasn't until college. Um, but, you know, I have to say one of the things that I really enjoy about your writing and your interests is you're a student of political history. And I saw your your, your tweet where you tweeted a, a video of the 1976 presidential debate between Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter and how they lost audio for a while. Just those nuggets, I I get such a kick out of. I wanted to sort of ask you about what elections you see, maybe one election, as the most similar to the election we're going through right now, even though I know this election is unprecedented in so many ways. But when you think about this in sort of in historical terms, are there elections that we could say, yes, we saw something similar in, you know, pick your year? I, you know, I'll give you the, the very unsatisfying maybe or kind of answer, because <laughs> it's one of those where it's like I feel we're in a place in this election where, you know, if it moves only a couple points in, in Trump's direction, he's got a shot at pulling it out. He's got a shot at pulling out the Electoral College, even if he loses the popular vote. And so when my mind starts kind of pondering, you know, that possibility, I start thinking a bit of 2004. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, George W. Bush, you know, winning re-election the country. You know, I, remember, I remember then a lot of the commentary was how the country had never been more polarized then. And it now you see what it, what it is these days. But you know, so there was something extremely high interest election, you know, polarized political climate. So, you know, and Bush was able to, you know, Bush was able to, he won the, won the popular vote, but also just the Electoral College, at least, clearly get reelected. So I kind of wonder about that with Trump. Um, but when, when you start thinking about moving a few points the other way, or even things staying a bit like they are right now, my mind goes to 1980. Mm. And, you know, there you've got, Jimmy Carter, the incumbent president, where the race up to election day, certainly within a couple of days of election day, certainly looks like he's got a shot and everything just kind of broke against him. And the, the debate, that one debate, Carter and Reagan, where Reagan got, there you go again. And are you better off than four years ago? You know, Reagan just really did you know, destroy him in that debate. And the next thing you know, Reagan's winning 44 states. Republicans are, are every close Senate race breaks the Republicans way. They end up taking the Senate, taking control of the Senate. They hadn't had that in 26 years at that point. And I kind of look at things now. Biden wouldn't win on that scale, you know, if he won a closest thing to a landslide he could get today. But there's this scenario where not only do Democrats get the Senate, but a Montana breaks their way, Iowa breaks their way, Kansas breaks their way. 
they get a bunch of Senate seats and all of these sort of toss up electoral college states break to Biden and he's, you know, 350, you know, somewhere around there electoral votes. I think, you know, around there is probably his ceiling. So I kind of some days I look at the polls and I'm like, geez, what if it all breaks Biden's way? And that's where my, my mind goes to 80. And some days I say, geez, what if what if it's just a couple more points in Trump's direction? And then it's, you know, maybe he could engineer a very polarized reelection win like Bush did. Mm, that was such an interesting answer. I'm thinking about 1980 and the debate, like as you said, at the end, my recollection, and maybe not recollection is the wrong word, but maybe when I look back on polling, because I guess I was 14 years old and not like you, I was not, <laughs> I was not tuned into the 1980 election. But what I learned, I think, in my political science classes is that, that there was that late break for Reagan, really late in the campaign, that the, that the polls were showing a very close race. And then um, after like the last debate, Reagan just completely opened it up. And actually, the polls really didn't pull that closely to the end, or at least many of them didn't, um, didn't catch that big wave for Reagan. And they underestimated and, and uh, you know, the size of Reagan's victory. They didn't basically they didn't see it coming. Uh, pollsters, election analysts, it, it was a surprise. And in terms of context, it, you know, I and we could talk some about 2016 and the polls. But when people talk about the polls being off, actually, the the election where the polls were really off was was 1980. There was that was a a big shocker, especially talking about the national polls. So, but what I did want to ask you sort of conceptually, Steve, is in that race, my recollect, again, I should keep saying recollection, but it's really what I learned (laughs) was that the debate made the difference. That last debate is what really influenced people. But what I'm wondering is, are we in a different political era now that it seems, at least from our polls and other polls, that people have just might made up their minds, not just now, but for many months they've seemed to have made up their minds. Do these can a debate like 1980 clearly had an impact? Can a debate, you think, have much of an impact today? Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. And I mean, that's when I when I see your polls, that's what jumps out to me, too, is that number when you ask, you know, um, have you made up your mind? And it's 92, 94 yeah. percent these states and, it's, and i feel like it's probably a matter of years we're talking here that, that people have had their minds made up yeah. one way or the other you know they're gonna vote for trump or they're not gonna vote for trump and I think yep. just so few people are, are anywhere in between but there are people in between so it's not to say that the vast majority of people have made up their mind is true but that doesn't mean that there aren't still some persuadable voters and i you know so i, I there is something there that's up for grabs mm. and not a lot of it you know, has to move comparatively for for Trump to, you know, I think get a sh- have a shot here. So in that sense, I do feel like the debates can matter. Um, you know, and the question is, you know, sort of how in what way? Because 1980, the way I look at it is, there were doubts about Reagan. You know, believe it or not, we say this now to people, um, his age. I mean, he was 69. You know, basically a decade younger than Joe Biden is now, half a decade younger than Trump, but. That was considered, 
you know, getting way up there. And do we really want a president who's going to turn 70, you know, a couple of weeks after the inauguration? I mean, that was a real question. And Reagan was also seen as, you know, there were a lot of concerns. Is he too extreme? Mm. Um, you know, it was only 16 years after Barry Goldwater had been just totally wiped out, you know, only got 38% of the popular vote. And Reagan was a Goldwater guy. Reagan represented a big, big ideological change in the Republican Party. And then you, you add on top of that the, you know, the Cold War and was Reagan going to be too trigger happy with a nuclear weapon? So there were, you know, real broad electoral concerns out there for Reagan um, and that Carter was taken advantage of. You know, one of the reasons the race was so close, despite Carter being very unpopular in the polls, was Reagan. People had real doubts. So the, the debate gave Reagan the opportunity to answer all of those doubts. And he did. I mean, it was just a command. I mean, he was an actor, so it's. <laughs> A lot of this stuff, the stagecraft of it came naturally to him, but it was a command performance. And it just all of those doubts melted away and then it turned into the, the, the landslide that we're, we're talking about here. I mean, for Biden, the obvious parallel there, the obvious opportunity um, is to the extent there are concerns, you know, about his age, about his ability, about a president who would turn 80 in his first term. Um, he could, you know, strong Solid command performance could go a long way to allaying those concerns for him, um, and, and and could certainly help reassure voters. Anybody who's you know nervous on that front, the the, the complicating thing with Trump, from my from my view, is when you took all the polls in 2016 about the debates, he lost them all. Yeah, uh, he lost them all, you know, dramatically. <laughs> so, and then he went and won the election. So it's like I, I kind of feel it's like 2016 kind of showed us. I I don't know that Trump can win the debates just based on 2016. But the opportunity for Trump, then I really think becomes less, you know, something he does affirmatively and more, does Biden make a big blunder? Does Biden make a big mistake? I think, and I, I get the sense, you know, from the Trump folks that that they, they have some hope for that, you know, that the Biden who shows up unnerves the public. I mean, again, I, I keep talking age here. You think of 1984, to the extent anybody ever thinks in 1984, that first Reagan-Mondale debate, you know, Reagan was 73 then running for re-election, and he basically went blank, you know, on national TV. And it was a really jarring thing for people to see. And there was this, you know, I remember I interviewed Walter Mondale maybe 10 years ago, and I was, I was interested in, you know, I mean, this is one of the worst landslides in American history that he suffered. And if you look back at the polls from that campaign, it was basically never close. And I just I was curious, like, how do you do it? How do you how do you run, get up every morning and give the speech? How do you get yourself up for it when every time you look at a poll, you're 25 points behind? And he said there was one moment when he actually thought he was going to win. And it was when they were standing on the platform after the first debate and he and Reagan and he had seen what everybody else had seen. He saw that moment with Reagan. And there was, when you go back and look, I, it's, it's interesting. There's a very brief window there when the polling closed right after that first debate. And then it was in the next debate, Reagan had that famous line because the first question in the next debate is, Mr. President, people are now very worried about your age. And, and he says the, the, the line about, I won't make an age an issue in this campaign. I won't exploit my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> and, and that was it. And that was the, and Mondale also said he knew as soon as Reagan you know, got that line off, that it was over and he was lost. Um, but all a long way of saying, I feel like Trump folks are kind of expecting that Reagan first debate moment from Biden here and are expecting in some ways that it's going to unnerve. You know, certainly get that sense just from Trump's public rhetoric, if nothing else. 
So in, in that sense, it, I, I, when I think of what Trump can achieve from the debate, it's, it seems less Trump going out there and winning it on debating points. I mean, in 2016, that wasn't happening. And, and more either just being there for or somehow instigating through provocation a, a moment that kind of Biden moment that unnerves people. Hmm. You know, I can sort of see it going one of two ways for Biden in the debate. On the one hand, you could say, hey, he had all those primary debates um, to warm him up. And if anything, he seemed to get better in the debates, right? That he started out slowly and the more debates he got under his belt, he got better at it. His answers got crisper Um, because I remember he got some flack in the beginning for his debate mm-hmm. performance, right? And then he got better and he stopped, you know, by, by the last debate, you didn't hear that criticism of him anymore. Uh, but then I'm thinking, well, Trump will do everything he can to try to get under the skin of Biden, right? He's gonna push, push, push. And I guess, you know, it seems like Biden has a the, sort of the temperament where he can sort of let things slide off him, like, uh, ha, ha, ha. But you wonder if, if Trump goes too far, if he talks about Biden's family or something really personal, does Biden lose it? Does he get so upset? Um, I guess that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so the, the one Democratic primary debate that I think of is the very end you know, when it was down to just Biden and Sanders. And by that point, you know, coronavirus was taking hold, but they did have that one Biden Sanders one on one debate. So that was a, unlike those other, you know, nine, 10 candidate things where Biden, you know, be quiet for 30 minutes and then, you know, quickly speak up for 40 seconds. He really had to be, you know, he had to be present and, and you know, answering constantly um, in a way that's similar to Trump. But that's the big difference. You're right. It, it's Sanders was not trying to you know, prod him. Sanders took a very almost deferential approach to him, I would say, in that one debate today. I think Sanders could see where things were going. And, and, you know, obviously the country being in the pandemic at that point, too, he didn't probably detected that it wouldn't go over well if he he was, you know, super aggressive there either. But um, but Trump won't have any brothers about that. Yeah. I mean, there's I, I feel there's there is a Biden who's capable of handling, you know, a situation like that well. Like you say, if Trump goes after his family, you know, I think there's a there's a version of Biden that's capable of mounting a very kind of emotionally compelling response to that. that could you know, score him a lot of points. But there is a Biden, too. There's a version of Biden who can you can get under his skin fairly easily. That's been true throughout his career. I mean, it got him in trouble in his first presidential campaign, you know, go back to 1987. You know, one of the when things were really kind of coming to a head and they ended up dropping out of the race in 80, uh, September 87. You know, part of it was he had had this encounter with a voter in New Hampshire and the C-SPAN camera was rolling and the guy got under his skin. Just, just I don't even think he meant to. And that was where Biden started making all of these inflated boasts about his academic you know, record and finishing at the top of his class, whatever the, and the, the claims when the video was examined ended up not being true. And it just kind of um, added at that point to this image of Biden as a you know, resume embellisher and all these things. And, and, you know, you still I remember there were a couple instances on the campaign trail in 2019 where it was the same thing. It was just it was these town hall settings where, you know, some of these voters who stood up, some of them were certainly there looking for a reaction. But I, I saw it a couple times. That's the same Biden. That's the that's the Biden from 87. 
And yeah, we haven't um, we haven't seen him in a in a debate this cycle like that. So it's an open question. We did see him with Paul Ryan in 2012 mm. in the EP debate where the, the Obama campaign very deliberately sent Biden out there to be the aggressor and to try to get under Paul Ryan's skin and to really try to, you know, kind of rattle him. Um, that was Biden purely, I would say, in that debate, he was just purely on offense. I think Ryan was very surprised um, and taken aback by the, the mm. Biden showed up. I don't think he was expecting it. Um this time, obviously, you know, Trump will be trying to assert himself and play offense. And, and yeah, that's a it's a big it's a big wild card. There's a million possibilities. It's Trump. You just don't know. But how does Biden respond to that? So that's a big that's a big question. And, and I have one other thought about the the debate, and then I'll ask you some other questions. But that if Biden makes a gaffe, I'm thinking, well. President Trump has said pretty much on a daily basis things that people go, whoa, I've never heard that before. Whoa, what a, you know, gaff. I just think that our, haven't we become so immune to now gaffes made by politicians that what could Biden say or do that would all of a sudden turn a Biden voter to Trump I find that hard to understand, but maybe, like you were saying, there are five to ten percent of voters who could still be moved who really aren't sure if they're not wild about either one. Maybe. Yeah, and what what is that like? What is the the hesitation that you know? I, I look if you if you think back to late twenty sixteen. Um, there's the school of thought that, and I don't necessarily subscribe to it. I suspect it was more complicated than this, though. I think it's reasonable to, you know, believe it played a role. Um, the reopening of the Hillary Clinton email investigation late in that campaign, you know, seemed to take a certain set of voters who perhaps had gotten to a point where they were willing to vote for Hillary Clinton and back off and end up, you know, going for Trump. Um, or at least voting for the, you know, for a third party candidate and not voting for Hillary Clinton. So, you know, now whether that was literally about email or if it was more broadly, there was a concern about Hillary Clinton, about the Clintons, about trustworthiness, whatever you know, it, it kind of connected with and reinforced. I, I suspect that's probably, you know, what was going on there. What would the comparable concerns be, you know, about Biden? I mean, Biden... I mean, you see this in your own polling. Biden has held up better with some of the voters who were most sort of averse to, to Hillary Clinton in 2016. But what would give them pause um, about Biden? And it's, it's it's interesting that, you know, Trump, I'm not the first to make the observation, but the Trump campaign has struggled there. They've struggled to find the the Trump nickname for Joe Biden. He's tried out a few. They've struggled to find the theme that they really want to you know, push with him. And like I said, I, I honestly, the most consistent thing you hear from Trump himself um, coming into this debate is, again, just this idea that it's that Biden basically saying can't handle a debate. Um, and so I'm, I almost wonder, does this that become the test? Does that become where the bar is set? And if, if Biden can handle the debate, you know, does, does Trump lose be, just because of that? Oh, I see what you're saying. The about the setting the expectations too high for the debate and that that Biden will will just not, you know, perform. And then when he does just, even if he just does okay, 
it's a win because people, yeah, because he's set these expectations so low that he's not going to be able if to. They set it. right if they set the bar at such a low level, you know, that even somebody like me could clear it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we asked in our poll about that we released yesterday, the national about Biden's intelligence, and people think he's intelligent. I mean, we didn't ask mm-hmm. specifically about debating skills, but he. He scores far higher on on all the different personal traits that we asked about, but intelligence was one of Biden's best uh, traits in terms of our our polling on it. Um, I'm curious, what did you I, what, what did you find? Uh, how did Trump score on on that question? I think it, he did okay. My recollection is he scored around fifty percent or so, saying he was intelligent. But it was something like two thirds saying that that Biden was intelligent. Hmm. And, and it's a question that we've asked. Um, you know, we we asked early on in Trump's administration for a couple of years. He would never blow it out of the you know ballpark. He would get you know around that fifty percent score of people thinking mm-hmm. he was intelligent, but. Um, you know, Biden, this is the first time we've asked ab- about him yeah. and it was close to two thirds. There's a gap there. It's interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Steve, now that we're talking about polling, uh, uh, you know, you're looking at the polls one day, you're kind of thinking, eh, maybe it's, you know, Trump can, you know, if he gains a few points, he can pull it off. Or other days, you know what, the numbers are looking like, well, maybe we're in, you know, Reagan landslide territory. When you get this sort of deluge of polls and, you know, I'm looking at them every day, I'm sure you are, like, it's it's kind of overwhelming. There are so many polls. I think there were like four in Florida and just in one day. How do you make sense of it all? You got, let, let's say you have, you know, 20 different polls to look at. Um, so, and, and now that we're in serious battleground times, oftentimes several from the same place, how do you make sense of it all? Yeah, I've actually, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on my computer and I can, I can call it up because this is what I was doing before we uh, uh, started the podcast. I, I just, I've been entering them into a spreadsheet and just the overall results and then some of the, you know, crosstab results. And I love that there's we're in the season where there's a bunch coming out and, and where there's a bunch coming out from from the same state in a lot of cases, because you can you can kind of look across them. I'm just doing it right now. And just and you look for, you know, are there some trends here? Um, are there are there things that are happening in one poll, but then five other polls? It's not happening. Um, you know, are there things that are happening in one poll? And, oh, it's also happening in this one and this one and this one. And you can kind of. You can kind of see a, a, a potential trend there. You can see something that might be, well, you know, maybe it's maybe it's not really happening just because that one poll found it. Um, so it's, I, I, I kind of love that we're in the season. Um, we, I, we were in a lull there, yeah. uh, as you know, around, um, I would say, just around the convention time, especially at the state level where we just weren't getting anything. Now we're getting a ton. And I see there's, yep. there's more on the way. And yeah, no, I like it from that perspective just because... You know, I, it's again. This is this is not a, a radical innovation. Others have been talking about this, you know, for a long time. But I, I just the value to me is in is in kind of averaging them together and you know trying to make sense of things that way. Gotcha. Not to turn this too much into polling methodology, but just curious. 
Are there things that you're looking for that you say, you know what, I, I think I'll pay attention to that poll, or, but then this other poll, you know what, I don't think I'm going to use that or I'm not going to factor in. Or, or, or do you, you, you tell me how you kind of look at it. Are there different polls do you look at differently? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, I, I, I do look at them all because, um, and that's where that the average kind of, I think, mm-hmm value in the average because the one that you look at and you kind of your gut tells you now that's that's not right um it's good to have in there anyway and maybe it is and i think it just establishes a range of possibilities yeah it does so i think it's important to to look at them all and not just be guided by the gut um but yeah no i i look at pollsters you know like you who've been doing it for a while somebody who's got a you know i think a track record you know, being out there and doing it um, or doing it in particular states. You know, I think that's that's something that, you know, because we're also in the season where a lot of um, polls will crop up and, and and I'll say, wait, who who took that poll? I've never, <laughs> I'm not familiar with this, um, you know, and, and I don't, that does, don't mean to cast aspersions on, on, on a, anyone who falls in that because sometimes new pollsters come along and, it, and wow, they really, they really know their stuff. But yeah. Um, I do think there's, you know, from my standpoint, I, I pay more attention when there's a track record there, when it's somebody I think who's established, they, they kind of know what they're doing before. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, pollsters out. I, I, I'm interested too, you know, as you know, like Nate Cohn at, um, at the New York Times has, it's an interesting thing he's doing because he kind of came into it reporting on polls and now is like designing his own polls. <laughs> Um, which I haven't seen, you know, happen before. And it's it's just interesting. I, I find it just to watch, um, you know, in 2018, he was doing all these individual, you know, house race polls around the country, um, you know, when that was the big story. So he'll occasionally come out with some. And I, I, I find it, you know, interesting because he, he's being very, he's designing it and he's, he'll write the article that takes you through six or seven decisions he made you know, to put it together. So I, I just, I find that to be an, inter- an interesting thing. You just, you, you don't see in a lot of other places. Has he given you any ideas, Steve, going from covering, being a political reporter, covering <laughs> to actually being a pollster? Uh, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll is the best in the <laughs> business. So there's no, <laughs> nothing for me to improve on. Gotcha. A good company man. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about something you said earlier about different states to keep an eye on. It it seems to me, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, that in general, analysts started out with th- looking at this presidential election through the prism of three states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, that those were the, the blue wall, that if Biden won those three states, he wins the presidential and holds all the Hillary Clinton states, he wins the presidential election. Then that map of battlegrounds got expanded and you saw Florida and Arizona and North Carolina and then and saying, okay, Biden's got a shot there too. Now we're looking at, if you add in another four, like you're looking at 10 states that all of a sudden are in play. You add in Georgia and Iowa and today we released polls on Texas and Ohio and all of these states are suddenly in in, in play and it it, it just it, I mean if as I'm looking like you at the polling in all the different states it looks like Biden's numbers 
are the best still going back to those original three, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Everyone said, you know, this is these are the states, the low hanging fruit, if you will, for Biden to concentrate on. But I'm looking at all these other polls in these six other states and they're like one point for Biden or one point for Trump. They're really close. So is that how you're seeing this sort of looking at the the battlegrounds is that all of a sudden we've gone from three states to to 10 states that we should be watching yeah i mean and, and when i to bring it back to that you know when i get in that what if the race ends up what if the national popular vote ends up roughly where the polls are now which is you know about a 7 give or take about a 7 point lead nationally for biden or even a tick higher you know, what if he wins the national popular vote by eight or nine points, um, which is not implausible at all? Yeah. I mean, then I start thinking, well, he could get Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, he could get Arizona, he could get North Carolina, he could get Florida, he could get Iowa. Iowa looks like it's moved a ton since 2016. And that's when I start to say that when I get into that, you know, Reagan 80 mode, that's where it comes from. It comes from that's the you know, Reagan won the popular vote by 10 in 1980. You know, that the, the red state, blue state polarization wasn't what it is. So he could that 10 point, you know, popular vote win translated into 44 states and 489 electoral votes. Wow. Point Biden win polarization, you know, being what it is today, I'm guessing would be about 360, 370 electoral votes, something like that. But that's the scenario where, you know, he gets all of those you know, sort of all of those swing states. I mean, if you ever were to, I say 10, if you were to get, if you were getting a Texas, he could then getting, start getting into the high, you know, 300s, you know, that's if everything broke his way. So yeah, no, I mean, I, they're, I, they're all sort of on the radar right now. You know, I'm wondering if there's a bit of a, of a divide. When I say I start looking at the spreadsheet for trends, I guess the one that I feel like I'm seeing a bit is the Northern blue collar white voters who were such a big, big group for Trump in 2016 and moved so dramatically from Obama, the Obama, Obama, Trump voters really in the northern states. Boy, it does look like, at least from the polling, there's been significant movement away from Trump and toward Biden. And it may not necessarily be true in the Sun Belt. So I start to wonder, it's like, I used to think if you'd asked me coming into this campaign in 2020, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Michigan, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, excuse me. Trump's got to win one of them. You know, he's got to hang on to at least one. And then a bunch of other things have to happen. Which one is he best positioned? I would have said Wisconsin. And looking at the polling now, I'm, I'm thinking his best shot in that group of states may end up being Pennsylvania. Just we average them all together. The slippage with the non-college whites hasn't has been less in Pennsylvania than it's been in in those other states. Um, and then maybe the Trump scenario now to me would be something like win Pennsylvania, obviously win Arizona, win Florida, Georgia, you got to win Georgia, you got to win Tech. You know, um, a lot has to break his way. But I, I think I start to think Pennsylvania, you know, more than Wisconsin might have a better shot at, at Pennsylvania than Wisconsin, which I wouldn't have. My mind was not there until very recently. Yeah. So would you say that pencil, if you're going to watch one state? To tell you sort of, you know, which way this race is going to go, Pennsylvania would be that state. Um, in a normal, um, in a scenario where election night was going to go like a normal election night, I would. I think the, the problem is if you watch Pennsylvania on election night this year, you might not see much. Yeah. 
because, you know, that's the biggest wild card here. But, you know, based on the way their primary went, Pennsylvania may take a long, and I mean days when I say long, long time to get their votes in. So it's a it's a great barometer if it if it ends up if they get their act together uh, between the primary and, and election night. And there's only so much I think they can do on that front. So, you know, in hindsight, Pennsylvania might be the one that explains it all. I'm not sure it will on election night. Yeah, actually, that raises another question in my mind as sort of a broader question, but something that's happened in Pennsylvania recently, and I'm sure you know about it, is this issue of the naked ballots. And I've seen David Wasserman uh, tweeting about it, saying it's a concern that a lot of reject a lot of Democrats may have their ballots rejected because they don't put it into the correct envelope. And, you know, the, the numbers are, are pretty high, tens of thousands of, of votes being rejected. And I guess there was a, a court case, a Republican sued and said, you can't count those votes. And and so it made me think about sort of the, the broader question is how much do you think things like that, things like, you know, the post office not processing mail as quickly <laughs> as people wanted to or or other things um, that things that come up where people want to cast a ballot, but they're not successful and. Do you think that, you know, concerns that Democrats have about this, do you think that, you know, they're right to feel this way, to be really concerned that they could potentially lose the entire election over these kinds of things? Or do you think it's overblown that, yeah, that stuff happens in elections, but it's not going to be decisive? It, it's hard to make a definitive statement on that just because we've yeah. never had an election like this. Yeah. And, you know, we just don't know, especially a state like Pennsylvania, it's not been in the mail-in voting game, you know, for any meaningful period of time. We don't know how it's going to play out. You know, there are issues we're starting. You mentioned that the naked ballot thing, two envelope issue. I mean, okay, we're starting to learn about that. There's you know, maybe in Pennsylvania, maybe somewhere else, there'll be other issues that that emerge. Nobody knew hanging chads were going to be an issue in Florida. <laughs> Until after you know all the all the ballots were uh, were cast in 2000, there's just a potential with with widespread you know mail in voting the way it is. There's a potential for a lot of different issues to to pop up. I New York State had its primary, and there's a very you know it's similar to this issue you're talking about in Pennsylvania, a very confusing signature issue in the New York City ballot rejection rate was something like you know 20 percent, a mail in ballot rejection rate wow. like 20 percent. Um, it was off the charts. Now, I mean, New York state is not going to be a swing state in the presidential election, but it's just an example of, you know, the kind of thing you're seeing. And, and what I'm interested in is I think there, I feel we're, there's a movement here that's, that's, that's kind of taking out, taking place in democratic politics where there was a just full-fledged commitment to mail-in voting starting with the pandemic, starting about six months ago, and Democrats talking it up and, um, you know, Trump obviously then taking his position on it that Democrats going even more. I think that the kinds of issues you're raising now, I'm seeing in some of the polling, are starting to unnerve Democrats. Um, you're still seeing Democrats much more than Republicans saying they're going to vote by mail. Republicans much more than Democrats saying they're going to vote on election day. But I've started to see those numbers change a bit because I think the kinds of things you're talking about are taking hold in the minds of a lot of Democratic voters. So I, I, I'm starting to wonder if the 
I don't think they're going to be balanced. I think there's going to be a, a big imbalance between the election day vote being you know skewed heavily to Republicans, the mail-in vote in, in a lot of states being skewed heavily toward Democrats. I think there's a partisan element that's been you know kind of created by the the, the, the particulars of this election year. But I think it may not be as it may not end up as dramatic as we thought it would be because I, I sense that nervousness is growing among Democrats. And that it may there may be a lot of Democrats who end up saying, you know what, I'm I'm forget the mail in vote. I'm going to go and do it in person um, who weren't thinking that way you know, a month or two ago. Gotcha. You know, I, I had been seeing in our own polling that it wasn't as big of a mail early mail in vote as was being projected, because in our national that we released yesterday, it was a third who said they were going to vote by mail and. My recollection is in six two thousand sixteen, it was about a quarter, mm-hmm. and the projections were for this election maybe doubling, maybe fifty percent vote by mail. I, I I saw some surveys saying even higher than fifty, and I'm we we asked it twice in our polling over the last co- couple of months, and each time it was about a third saying they'd vote by mail. So it, it may even. Come like you said, Steve. It may come down after all these concerns about um, voting by mail may even be closer to that twenty five percent that we saw in two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And and you know, I'm just starting to look too. They've got stats up for a couple of these states that have begun the, the mail in voting process, and it does look like they're way outpacing twenty sixteen for ballots return. But of course, it just raises the question: is that is that just because the energy level where the most committed voters is, is is off the charts right now. So, you know, the most committed voters are the ones that signed up right away for mail and voting, got their ballot right away, immediately checked it off. Immediately, does do these numbers we're starting to get on the on returned ballots just reflect that and will not actually translate into the mass scale of, of mail and voting that we were thinking about a while back? I do think the danger for uh, people who think, you know what, I don't, I was going to vote by mail, but you know what, I'm going to now vote for on election day is the coronavirus. And that right now, you know, people say, you know, including Dr. Fauci, you know, it's safe to vote in person. But what if we really have a huge spike in October and People are going to get unnerved about voting in person if it gets really bad. Um, I think that's something that maybe should be considered. But yeah, no, I absolutely. You're, and you're right. I mean, it's it's we're, we're, it feels like still a lot of cases, still a lot of deaths going on. But it feels overall like country is kind of in a lull here. And yeah, what you what you hear from these experts about when when it could kick up again. Yeah, it could be around that time. You know, earlier on, I had mentioned I read a tweet by David Wasserman about the, um, the naked ballots in Pennsylvania. And I had wanted to ask, that's how I learned about this issue. And I was like, you know, I learn a fair amount from Twitter these days. Hmm. And I was going to ask you, you know, where you get your information, how much are you getting from Twitter or traditional sources? Yeah, you know, it, it, Twitter's been around at least for my experience about ten years. I think I've been using it. I think it was probably only a little bit before that that it, that it came around. Um, I remember in the early days, 
thinking it was a really good thing and that it had essentially, from a media standpoint, um, it had essentially replaced the old AP Newswire, where it was just, you followed certain number of accounts, certain number of people on Twitter, and at any time you get on and you see the five news stories everybody's talking about at that moment and the five things that happened in the six hours since the last time you got on it. I kind of saw it that way. Um, and I think it's still, there is still a, a value in it that along those lines, you know, there are smart, well-informed people there with interesting ideas and with um, interesting perspectives and flagging interesting things that they find um, that you wouldn't hear about and see otherwise. So I do see value in it. Um, and it, I, that value is still there, but I do feel, and I think this was a problem in 2016, there is a, almost a, a culture that's kind of been created of uh, sort of the lack of a better term, a sort of political media culture and media culture, Twitter, it's, it's hard to define exactly what it incorporates, but I'm very aware of it. I, I think I was, I saw it in 2016 and I think it, it, it created a lot of the conditions where it, it would have been looking at the numbers that were available in 2016. I think anybody who was confident that Trump was going to win the election, that that would be going too far in 2016. Um, I, I think it was fair to portray him as the underdog in that campaign. That's what the numbers were suggesting. But he had a chance. And I, I think there were there were things happening in that. For me, I just I, I remember having a, a moment in the fall of 2015 when my perception of what was happening politically with Trump changed dramatically um, because I had been to the same school of thought of most people when he first got in the race that, you know, maybe this isn't even serious. Maybe he's not actually even trying to win. Certainly it's just, he's not going to get anywhere with this. I remember our first NBC Wall Street Journal poll after Trump announced his candidacy June, I believe, 2015. He was at 1%. And this was when Republicans were coming up with like a list of you know, we can't get everybody on the debate stage. We're going to have a varsity debate in the JV. And I remember doing a segment saying right now, Donald Trump would be in the JV debate, you know, like that's, that's what it looked like at the beginning. And so and all along way of saying the moment for me was whenever it was in the summer of 2015, when he started moving up in the polls and he went after John McCain and he did the whole thing, McCain, I don't believe you're a hero if you, if you got shot down and Stuff that, I mean, it is just, it couldn't be more obvious in the past would end the candidacy on the spot. And the use, the people you would expect to speak out and say that in Republican circles did speak out and say that. And you didn't get an apology really from Trump. And I'm, okay, this is it. This is everything I know about how these things work tells me you got to 20% in the last six weeks. Now he's going to be down to 10 and five and it's going to fizzle out. And instead, kept rising. <laughs> and from that moment on, I said, I, I am not confident. I have a grasp on what's <laughs> happening here. And I do not rule out starting at that point as a, I do not rule out that he's going to, this is just going to continue. And he's just going to win the nomination because he just did something, make it a neutral statement, whether you think he should have been able to or not, he just achieved something there politically that I did not think was possible. And, and I, I think there were a ton of moments in the 2016 general election campaign, Trump versus Clinton, where the one I remember, too, that sticks out was the weekend of the Access Hollywood tape. I remember NBC was in the in the field with a poll. And when we, you know, when the number came back, the story broke on a Friday. 
I think the poll came out on a Tuesday. It was something like that. And the, the overall number in the poll was bad for Trump. He'd fallen, I think, 11 points behind overall in the poll. But they broke it down by day. And of course, there's a large margin of error when you do an individual day number. You know, you know that. Um, but it, nonetheless, it was striking to me that you could. It, it was like Saturday and Sunday were brutal for Trump, but Monday wasn't. Right back to normal. It was right <laughs> to where the, the baseline. Right. And, and I just that that was my take when that poll came back in. I said, I have a feeling this has not not improved his position, but it hasn't hurt his position. And I think there were there were a lot of warning signs there that things were going on that we just that, that a lot of folks um, and the media just generally is what I'm saying, I guess, um, just didn't engage with. And I think Twitter and I think there's all sorts of pressures, sort of almost like social pressures that come with with being on Twitter. Um, the incentives align with not engaging with. And there's sort of this collective thing where everybody if everybody kind of fails together. It's okay if everybody is out there saying Clinton's going to win to varying degrees in 2016 and then Clinton loses. Well, everybody did it together. You, know, you didn't want to be the one person out there in 2016 saying Trump's going to win, Trump's going to win, Trump's going to win, and then Trump loses. Nobody will ever forget that, you know? Right. Um, and I said the complicated thing with Trump to me, too, is it was never clear he was going to win. The only thing to, I think that was clear was that, you know, he wasn't out of it. But I think even that, I think there was there was a, a broad, broad sort of almost like peer social pressure that, that social media and Twitter uh, kind of created to not even acknowledge that. And that, that was one thing I, I saw and that bothered me in 2016. You know, and along the same lines that, that concerns me about a repeat of 2016 is that you do see this, the one mistake on social media and in some of the media definitely not you you're a very careful reporter about polling and you're and you're talking about it now is that a poll will come out like i saw the abc washington post poll that had you know a very narrow margin for trump in arizona and florida and they were being very clear that they're not saying this is a lead for trump and yet in the media, I saw headlines and social media, people saying it, oh, Trump is ahead. Um, in these states, I'm like, wait a second, that's not what that poll said. And I remember being on the other side of it back in 16, you know, we'd have a poll in Florida that said Hillary Clinton has, you know, is ahead by one point, but that is a too close to call. That is definitely not a lead. It could go either way. And I was like, please, there is a margin of error. Please be careful. And, you know, you and I are talking about these, all these different battleground states that have basically one or two point leads one way or the other. Who knows which way they're going to go? They're too close. Just because Biden has a one or two point lead in a few of these polls in states, that is, you can't take that to the bank. And I thought we had learned that. Well, I, and it's the, the one that sticks out in my head, too, is two years later, Florida, 2018. I know. I think there was there was a, a big thing. This is a thing I remember making the rounds on Twitter over and over. It was, you know, 15 straight polls, 20 straight polls. DeSantis has been losing. <laughs> DeSantis predicts victory despite losing in 21 straight polls. You know, but they were generally close margins. Right. And DeSantis is the governor of Florida today, you know. Um, it's, it's a, 
yeah, it's a tough thing to um, shake off. And also, just along that same lines that we're talking, is that I know the ABC Washington Post poll also got some flack um, because they were the first ones to nominally have, you know, Trump ahead in Florida. And I was like, that is not any different than, you know, a Quinnipiac poll that says it's too close to call because they have Biden, because we have Biden up by a couple points. Why are people making such a big deal out of this? But it goes to your sort of point about being the outlier, being the one to say, well, maybe Trump is going to win Florida and and then get it basically a tower that you can't be right. All the other polls don't show right. that. You know, it's not a good mentality, especially when, you know, my, my I'm sort of giving my own sort of, um, you know, sermon here about polling. But, you know, you've got a high quality poll like ABC Washington Post. And I don't know all the other polls, as you mentioned, if they have track records in Florida that are sort of establishing that act that, you know, OK, Biden is ahead in every poll, blah, blah, blah. But who are those other polls? Yeah, we had him nominally ahead by three, but that's statistically insignificant. I, my point is just that there's I think there needs to be more careful, both sort of analysis of w- what polls are showing, meaning maybe certain polls need to be given more weight because of their reputations and their you know methodology. And also to, you know, sort of question this idea of what is an outlier. And then finally, the, the margin of error stuff. I hear what you're saying, and it occurs to me listening to that, that I think the other thing you're kind of up against there is just <clears throat> media these days. This is where social media comes together with more broadly, you know, media has evolved. And that is you've got so much, so many, I should say, basically partisan media outlets out there now. It's like the old days in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, 19th century where, you know, the, 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 the local newspaper was either the Democrat or the Republican. And they literally, you know, and you have that in media a lot these days. You've got social media that feeds it and they, they kind of merge together. And it means that if you're on the Republican side of things and you get the poll that actually has Trump four points higher than Biden in Florida, by God, that that poll is the poll of the day. And if you're on the Democratic team and you've got you know, the poll that's got Biden, that's your poll. And that's the one you're going to have on social media and all your folks on social media are going to go wild with. And and that's a, a dynamic, I think, that you're, you're very well-placed plea for um, understanding of the methodology of these polls and some nuance in discussing them up against that too, I think. No, you're absolutely right. Um, Steve, I feel like I could go on forever asking you these questions. This has been like an amazing discussion. I, I found it fascinating. I was going to ask you all about the Senate and all this stuff, but I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, this has been terrific. I, I can't thank you enough. I was happy to do it. Thanks for having me on. All right, Steve. I'm looking forward to continuing to watch and, and good luck on election night. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'll need it. <laughs> all right. Take care. Thank you for joining us on The Polling Perspective, a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with the Quinnipiac University Poll. Our podcast is produced by David DeRoche, Samantha Stella, and Mark Bouchard. For more information on The Poll, visit poll.qu.edu. For more information on our podcasts, visit qu.edu 
slash podcast. Don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at QU Podcasts and at Quinnipiac Poll. I'm Doug Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode.